back to Peace in Their Time, episode 33, Crashing the Party. The failure of Germany in World War I was a very, truly personal blow for Adolf Hitler, and his craving to reverse that defeat, and more besides, would drive him for the rest of his life. In November 1918, though, he was still Corporal Hitler, decorated war veteran of a thoroughly defeated army. By November 21st, Hitler had recovered enough from the gas attack and was deployed back to Munich. The city itself was in chaos, as by this point, Kurt Eisner had set up his ineffectual breakaway local government. If you think that Hitler was disgusted at his Munich being led by a man who had a socialist background and was also a Jew, he definitely was. Seeing that, and the local army garrison organized itself into a soldier's council and declined to resist this change, Hitler took the first opportunity to get out of town. He found the opportunity in a guard job for Russian POWs east of the city. Him and an old comrade from his runner days went together, and Hitler was at that POW camp until either late January 1919 or early February. He himself claimed to be there to march, but the camp closed down by mid-February, so that doesn't really check out. Probably by late February, he was back in Munich performing guard duties where needed. The problem, as ever, is that records were spotty as hell during these days, and Hitler was kind of mummed the details, and there might have been a reason for that. Per Ian Kershaw's very good biography on Hitler, it was recorded that he acted as a representative of the company of soldiers he was assigned to, specifically the representative to the revolutionary government. This role would basically make him in charge of ensuring his unit would comply with the regime and be receptive to its ideological message, which uh, would be quite a turn for Hitler to be acting as a socialist regime's middleman with the army. Interestingly, also, when the communist faction took over, Hitler didn't offer any resistance. In fact, he got bumped up from representing the company to the whole battalion, and he just kept merrily chugging along, not offering any resistance to the new, new regime. Going with Kershaw again, in the council debates among the soldiers, Hitler was willing to go with the SPD against the communists, which makes sense in a lesser of two evils sort of way, but was outvoted by his comrades, a result with which he complied. He would later claim to merely have been sympathetic with the economic reforms that benefited the average German that the SPD was advertising. And though his collaboration would not do any lasting damage for his future in the far right, it was something that earned him some static in the early days, especially from the Free Corps types, as when those units finally redeployed to crush Red Munich, Hitler really just stood aside and didn't get involved in the street fighting. This lack of action worked out for him, though, as when the dust settled after the Free Corps stormed Munich, Hitler was kept on as a quasi-leader of what was left of his battalion. More of a spokesperson, really. But it meant people actually started to notice him. And the army was looking to make sure no more of its soldiers went red or even sympathized with the Reds. In May 1919, Captain Karl Mayer arrived in Munich. His mission was simple, to root out communist sympathies and make sure they never took hold again. That meant convincing the rank-and-file soldiers that the whole soldier council's idea was bad and that traditional discipline and ideals were very good. Among others, 
he enlisted Corporal Hitler to provide lectures to groups of soldiers to steer them back onto the correct path of patriotism and anti-socialism. Initially, Mayer was unimpressed with the corporal, comparing his appearance and mannerisms to a broken-down dog. But he must have seen some use in it, and Hitler spent a week in June 1919 attending propaganda lectures where he would learn the talking points of anti-socialism that the army wanted to start pushing. As might be imagined, Hitler took to the lessons. It was when he was speaking to a table of fellow soldiers, and by speaking I of course mean the usual Hitler rant, one of the lecturing professors noticed him and brought him up with Mayer. The captain sent Hitler as part of a group to the town of Lechfeld for a five-day speaking engagement to a unit station there. Whereas the style of the more intellectual types was dry and focused on making an argument, Hitler's parts were more an emotional appeal both to reactionary ideals and base racism that wound up going over way better with the soldiers. It was after this success that Hitler started being assigned more responsibilities. He would continue lecturing to his fellows back in Munich, and in addition, he would start to investigate the bewildering array of micro-political parties that were springing up. His new job was to watch out for communist thought sneaking back into the city's discourse. As part of this duty, on September 12, 1919, Hitler attended a meeting of a small party known as the German Workers' Party, or the DAP. Just in case the name doesn't ring a bell, this was the proto-Nazi party. It had been founded back in January by a man named Anton Drexler, a railroad toolmaker. He was also a committed nationalist, but had been found unfit by the army, and thus had been obliged to stay home during the war. Something that did not sit well with him, and since Germany had lost, he had resolved to get out there and do something about it. The party itself was more of a small debate society to discuss a convergence of socialist and nationalist ideas, with the obligatory smattering of racism thrown in. The party name did only specify German workers, after all. Its founding had also been sponsored by the infamous Thule Society, a hybrid German supremacist mystical organization with many early links to the Nazi party. I'm going to take a little aside here and maybe dampen some expectations. A lot, and I mean a lot, of literature has been produced surrounding the activities of the Thule Society. They're pretty much the source of all the ancient Aryan race studies that the Nazis became notorious for later on, and many of their occult interests got transferred over to the Nazis. Looking at you, Indiana Jones movies, and half of all Hellboy comics. Sadly, though, they weren't that interesting, nor were they actually all that influential. Again, their membership was more of a social club with mystical interests. They didn't actually pursue those interests in any practical fashion. In fact, they were mostly used by the early Nazis as a source of funding, with many of their members being wealthy and open to providing donations. When Hitler started achieving even minor success, they were quickly marginalized. It's true their beliefs were held by some members within the Nazis, notably within the SS, but even the occult BS and tracking down ancient Aryans was more of a hobby than anything else. And even then, it was a collection of beliefs held by a minority of the party that wasn't advertised too hard, lest they be mocked and undermined due to their crank beliefs, which, given the baseline level of crank within what was to become the Nazi ideology, that's really saying something. So don't expect too much occult chat, but buck up, there's going to be more than enough crazy to cover here. Alright, so, 
Hitler attended the meeting and was thoroughly bored. To him, this little group was one of many that sprung into the political vacuum that was Munich and would soon vanish like most of your book clubs. Hitler was thinking about bailing before the full meeting was over when one of the speakers started calling out for Bavarian secession from the rest of Germany. At this, Hitler, supposed to be playing the inconspicuous observer, stood up and started dressing down the man for daring to suggest Germany be divided. He railed at him for a solid 15 minutes, which led the man to gather his things and flee before Hitler was even finished. Drexler immediately saw the speaker that his group so desperately needed. He gave Hitler his 40-page manifesto and asked him to make a return appearance. Hitler read the manifesto, but probably would not have gone back to the anonymous group. However, Drexler took the initiative and made him a member of the party without asking. Hitler was sent a postcard asking him to attend the next committee meeting of the party's leadership, which he was now a member of. Hitler later claimed that he had hoped to found a party of his own and went back and forth on whether to go. The choice might have been made for him, as Mayer saw an opportunity to build a political front to support the army's agenda and ordered Hitler to accept the invitation. Also, let's face facts, Hitler really didn't have the initiative to found his own political party. He would have talked about it for years and then slipped into obscurity. But he had his commanding officer to set him on his destiny. Fun note, it was actually illegal for a soldier at this time to be in a political party, but <laughs> oh man, if you haven't noticed yet, the German army loves breaking the law. Hitler was placed in charge of recruitment, which was quite a turn for the introvert. He took to his task with gusto, though, and started typing out adverts for the next public meetings back at his barracks. He even convinced Drexler to splurge on putting out an advert in the Muchener Biobachter, the anti-Semitic rag put out by the Thule Society. Which sounds like a terribly small thing to note, but keep in mind just how shoestring this operation was and where it's eventually going to go. The advertising paid off, and a little over 100 people showed up to the party's October 16th meeting. Hitler was enough of a speaking force to, to convince the crowd to donate 300 marks, which wasn't a lot, but was a lot better than the nothing that they had, and that money went right back into advertising for the next meeting on November 13th. Drexler and the others in leadership were hesitant to schedule another meeting so soon, but Hitler pressed, and as would be a reoccurring outcome, his personality won out over the others. The event, like the first one held at a beer hall, was also a success with an even larger turnout. And again, it was his speech which was the highlight. He would press for more meetings, more opportunities to get his voice out there. The party leadership started to look around nervously as their new speaker started to boss them around. An additional cause of concern was Hitler starting to bring his army buddies into the movement. Hitler also pressed for an established party platform, which he and Drexler prepared that winter. It was about what you'd expect, a series of points calling for things like a unified Germany comprising all lands they lived upon, discrimination and alienation against Jews, and protections for specifically German workers. Pretty much the hits of the far right of the time. With a settled program in place, Hitler went all out with posters and advertisements for the biggest gathering so far. On February 24, 1920, a crowd of 2,000 assembled to hear him. The opener was drab and intellectual, but when Hitler took to the podium, he brought emotion and conviction to his smears against the Jews. There were hecklers in the crowd who tried to disrupt him, 
but now he had his army buddies around and knock some skulls. Which, hey, that'll be the first steps of the Nazi thugs who will evolve into the brown shirts one day. The speech was a success, and word of mouth started going around. The local right-wing scene didn't take a huge note of the rally, but it solidified Hitler's control of the party itself. He had pushed for a far larger event than the party leadership thought possible, and pulled it off. Now there wasn't anyone accomplished enough to push back against Hitler. The people were coming to see him, not an obscure debate society. It wasn't long after that the DAP added an NS to its acronym. It was now the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Remember the Introduction to Fascism episode? An embryonic fascist movement will do virtually anything to get their foot to the door in terms of influence, even flirt with co-opting a few socialist ideas in order to score working-class support. This was another case of adding a couple working-class accoutrements to a hard nationalist core. And this point in winter 1920 is also when Hitler makes the personal acquaintance of an invaluable ally throughout his rise to power, Captain Ernst Röhm. Röhm was a seasoned veteran who was acting as a go-between for the army and underground free corps types. Röhm was also putting together networks of political groups, sharing similar reactionary ideologies, and linking them to those militias in order to better serve the interests of the military. Röhm was also a more interesting figure than the average Nazi, so I'll give him a little introduction. He was an army man, and survived two years of fighting on the Western Front, until a chest wound had forced him into a staff role. He also carried a scar of another wound on his left cheek. He had a reputation for bravery that brought him instant credibility and respect in the murky world of the underground Free Corps units and nationalist parties like the Nazis. He was also a semi-closeted homosexual, by which I mean he didn't want his sexuality, but everybody, including Hitler, were well aware. Which may make his popularity among the far right seem odd, but keep in mind, he was a war hero and a committed nationalist and was hell-bent on bringing down the Weimar Republic that was still trying to pull itself together. And just because the war was over didn't mean Rome was over. His element was among soldiers and violence. He was never a politician and was mostly contemptuous of them. He was one of those men that, when put through the hellscape of a modern war, could not return to a normal life afterwards. So, everybody let his sexual proclivities go. Plus, like I said, he was well-connected with the Reichswehr. If you were looking for the military to run interference for you against the civil authorities, Rome was your guy. Rome also was Captain Mayer's replacement, and so became Hitler's liaison with the army. The two seemed an odd couple. Hitler was gaunt and introverted. Rome was a short and stocky fellow known for his personal bombast. But they got on very well together. Hitler needed someone solid to guard his movement, and Rom needed a figurehead to be the focal point of political support. Both wanted to engineer a counter-revolution to bring down the Weimar government and install an authoritarian regime. Which brings me to the environment the Nazi party was now emerging into. By early 1920, Germany had settled down somewhat, at least to where the nation wasn't constantly falling apart. It was, though, still a whole new world in politics. The old imperial order no longer constrained political movements, and its downfall also left the nation open to a new identity. At this point, you are well familiar with the forces on the left, the KPD communists and the SPD left and center-left, with a handful of middle-class parties representing the center and center-right. It was at the ultra-right that the Nazis operated it. Specifically, they inhabited a political ecosystem known as the Volkish Movement. 
The movement actually began late 1800s, in response to modernization and industrialization. The fear among its adherents was that modern life was stripping away the distinct German character from the common man, with a dangerous new emphasis on mechanical production, increased consumption, and global connections. The early solution was to create an almost spiritual culture of Germanism, among which the population and a return of culture to distinctly German values, the café culture of Berlin and Munich, and the Marxist internationalism among the socialists would be suppressed. These ideas caught on to a point, but also veered into weird occultist territory, like trying to bring back old pagan beliefs, so it never really caught on. But the disaster of World War I created a situation where all bets were off, and the movement could take root again. This time, it would be more focused in practice, and many parties adopted the ideology, including the Nazis. The most apparent modern characteristic was its intense German nationalism. It was a movement to assert distinctly German dominance over all other identities. Germany was to be a leader by writ of inherent superiority. Uh, this also meant that all Germans were to be unified into a single nation. This was summed up with the slogan, Blood and Soil. All blood Germans would be unified as a body. The soil they lived on would be this greater Germany. So not just Germany, but its World War I territorial losses, Austria, and the German-speaking part of Sudetenland of Czechoslovakia were all fair game in this worldview. The cataclysm of World War I also conjured a new wrinkle the movement clung to, the idea that the German people were engaged in a life-or-death struggle with opposing races, namely Jews and Slavs, who were regarded as subhuman and fit for, at best, a separate and subservient existence. This exploited an underlying prejudice of the Germans that they had carried for a long time to this point. The Jews were useful scapegoats for the nation's ills well before World War I even ended, and the Slavic invader was a specter haunting Germany in the decades leading up to the war. The losses and misery afterwards were for the Volkish confirmation of this. To combat this threat, which was simultaneously inferior and a moral threat, the German people, supposedly racially pure, were to unify as a single body and restore the nation. Most groups subscribed to the idea of some kind of military dictatorship, as the popularity of the stab-the-back idea meant that the army was the only credible institution in their eyes. Who would be the messiah of this dictatorship? Nobody was really quite sure. The only thing they could all agree on was that the republic and the weak democracy it stood for had to be demolished. The movement was also against both capital and Marxism in its economic view. They saw capital as in the hands of Jewish businessmen or traders war profiteers. Marxism, they saw an inclusive and internationalist ideology that was wholly at odds with their German-centric worldview. Yes, there could be privileges, but only for the German proletariat. The rest of the world was fit only for exploitation. And that brings us to the final broad component I'll be discussing the need for expansion. Germany was simply too small to contain its population, and to catch back up with the other powers, new resources and markets were needed. There was debate about this within the movement. The traditional outlet was overseas colonies in Africa or Asia, and this still had its adherents. But given the vulnerability of overseas colonies during the war, many of the movement looked east. Some considered moving eastward through the Baltic, some straight through Poland but most all settled on the expanses of Russia as the final destination. 
Here was the land and resources Germany needed, and it was all close at hand. This was a basis for the Lebensraum idea that Hitler would so enthusiastically embrace. To that end, once the nation was unified, the military would be built back up and a war of expansion embarked upon. If all this sounds like a regurgitation of most of the greatest hits from the Introduction to Fascism episode, it's because these parties were fascists. The entire Volkish movement was firmly rooted in authoritarianism, racism, and militarism. This is all what we would call today Nazi shit. But back then, it was a broad platform shared among many groups, of which the Nazis were just one. And there wasn't a lot to set the early Nazis apart either. Even the swastika they adopted as an emblem was already in use by other groups in the far right. What the Nazis had that nobody else did, though, was Hitler. Speaking of the devil, back to him. Hitler was different, to say the least, from his counterparts in other groups. Hitler sought after conflict, both within the party and in the streets, as a means to draw public attention. He prided himself that party meetings were rowdy and shouty affairs, and that he deliberately sought out trouble with the left. The Nazi flag of a black swastika and a white circle set in the middle of a red flag was meant to catch as many eyes as possible. And it all worked, too. People started going where the action was, and Hitler was happy to oblige them. While he dominated the party, he was not technically its leader, and he had little interest in the details of the organization and he never would develop an interest. He was into the energy of a crowd. He fed off of it, and he fed it a turn with his screeds on the evils of Jewish-backed capital and the racially impure Marxists. For many in Munich in 1920, the world had fallen away, and dynamic leadership was demanded. Hitler was the one promising it. Now, this isn't to overstate things. Hitler was still a fringe figure in a fringe movement. But he wasn't just starting to get useful contacts at this point he was starting to attract an entourage. One notable figure was a man named Dietrich Eckhart. He was over 20 years Hitler's senior and a founding member of the DAP back in January 1919. He came from a well-off background and was university-educated, but was also a drunken bohemian. He thought of himself as an artist and intellectual. Naturally, Hitler and he hit it off. Eckhart would help Hitler create his brand dressing him in a trench coat and encouraging him to present himself as a genius, a higher being. While it was not immediate, the eventual Hitler myth would start here. Eckhart also introduced him to higher social circles as the future messiah of Germany, society much more well-connected than the soldiers and destitute that Hitler was otherwise familiar with. The two would BS each other about the arts and personal philosophies in the nice restaurants and cafes that Eckhart recommended to help boost Hitler's profile. The two would even go on a Berlin adventure in March 1920 during the Kapusch. Rome arranged for them to take a plane into the city and make contact with the right-wing uprising in the capital. A little trivia note is that the pilot was Ritter von Grey, a decorated veteran who would become a committed follower of Hitler and would rise through the ranks of the future Luftwaffe until becoming its final commander in the last days of the war. Hitler and Eckhart's arrival in Berlin, though, was poorly timed, as the push was already collapsing. They did take the time, though, to network a little bit. This was the time where Corporal Hitler met General Ludendorff, who was himself preparing to bail on the city. They also mingled with various North German Volkish groups and members of the Stahlhelm, the paramilitary veterans group. So, even though the coup was a catastrophic failure, they got an opportunity to press the racist flesh a little. The two left Berlin, and owing to the socialist militias prowling the parts of 
central Germany separating the capital from Bavaria had to do so in disguise. Upon returning on March 31st, Hitler was actually finally discharged from the army. The treaty conditions were taking effect, and the army could no longer keep him. Plus, his officers knew that he was serving his true purpose as a rabble-rouser. He was now his own man and answered only to himself. So he set up in the smallest and cheapest private room he could find and focused entirely on the work of the party. It was during these days that Eckhart introduced Hitler to Alfred Rosenberg, an ethnic German from the Baltic region of the former Russian Empire, who had fled the Bolsheviks. Up to this point, Hitler had gone back and forth with regards to communists. Their internationalist outlook was intolerable, but their desire to upend society was admirable. Several times he expressed a desire to harness and redirect that energy towards nationalistic ends. Rosenberg, though, set him on a different course, specifically by bringing to Hitler's attention the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. For those of you who are not in the know on your ultra-racist screeds, the Protocols are a fabricated account from a supposed Jewish perspective, laying out a gigantic conspiracy on the part of the Jewish people with the goal of world domination. Basically, it lays out that pretty much every force of the modern world, politics, industry, and finance, are all constructs by Jews created to control the world's population. Everything that sprung up since the Industrial Revolution played a part, whether it be capitalist wage slavery or Marxist revolutionaries promising a utopia. It was all controlled by Jews according to the protocols. It was published in the Russian Empire at first, and it became an international hit after the Russian Revolution. Turns out, people became much more willing to accept it once a communist revolution actually took off. And of course, that's the part the reactionaries focused on. It is a classic of shallow conspiracy theories, with no hard details, just a hard push to demonize Jews, and since many Jews were among revolutionary groups, communists as well. The book was a favorite of those fleeing the Soviets, such as Rosenberg. He sat Hitler down and opened his eyes and malformed heart to the teachings of the Protocols which Hitler adopted near instantly. Now his loathing of Jews would be matched with his loathing of socialists and communists, as the two groups in his eyes now went hand in hand. By August 1920, he made the demonization of Jews as the ultimate of society's ills the central part of his platform. At a mass party meeting, he laid out in painstaking detail accusations of the Jews undermining all societies since the death of Christ. Before, he characterized the Jews as parasitic, something to be isolated and jettisoned. But now, they took the shape of the great adversary, a body of people bent on the destruction of the German nation. He called for nothing less than a war against Jews the world over, and specifically refuted the idea of class struggle as just another one of their machinations. Now, what had been the German Workers' Party was wholly committed to the anti-Semitic struggle that lay ahead. Granted, it was an even more racist time back then than today, but the sheer scale of accusations was so over-the-top that it was kind of impressive that Hitler held the crowd together. I dread imagining two straight hours of crazy, racist lecturing, but delivered by Hitler, the message connected with the disenchanted of German society. And with the cornerstone of his cult of personality established, Hitler began assembling his more permanent inner circle that would achieve almost as much notoriety as he did, and that will be where I will pick up next week. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.